0: Hey Northstar community, it's Scott here once again introducing a podcast series that we're doing based on uh, the weekend messages that Teresa is doing in July and she's calling the whole series A Room with a View. Uh, this is part one in the series which she did on uh, well June 30th and July 1st and so she's recapping these so that if you weren't able to, to be here uh, that weekend you can get caught up and we'll continue to put these out each week. So we hope you enjoy. Okay, so Scott and I went to the opioid summit put on by the Virginia Chamber of Commerce. Interesting, right, that the Virginia Chamber of Commerce would do an opioid summit? But they did that because businesses are worried about how the opioid uh, and other addiction crises are affecting their capacity to uh, hire and retain productive workers. This is important because, obviously, They can't meet the demands of their business and be successful if they can't have a reasonably healthy, productive, can show up for work on Monday through Friday um, workforce. And guess what? They don't have that. So people are taking notice and they're concerned. One of the speakers at this opioid summit made a great analogy that I am totally um, enthralled with. She gave a great presentation, the likes of which, a lot of it I can't remember, but I don't think I'll ever forget this analogy. She talked about the fact that a lot of times the way we treat substance use disorder is a lot like how you would deal with somebody who gets caught up in an avalanche. Uh, you wait until the snow stops sliding, and then you send in a rescue team, and then you pull people out from under 5 or 10 or 40 feet of snow, and you assess them as you would in any kind of acute crisis. You look for injuries, you do CPR if you need to, you triage the broken bones, you airlift them uh, to a hospital for critical care. According to this speaker, she thinks that this is how a lot of times we treat substance use disorder, like it's an acute crisis. And people rally around when there's an inevitable avalanche or uh, crisis moment in the slow or sometimes rapid decline of someone who is a chronic substance use disordered person who doesn't get treatment. And uh, then we stand them or prop them up on their feet and that's it. That's all we do. Now, as she was given this analogy, she went on to say, we need to deal with the things that you know lie underneath the substance use disorder. Of course I love that because we've been saying that for decades around here as have most people who study the field so saying we've got to figure out how to get someone not just back on their feet from the avalanche but how to help people recover their lives and as she spoke I sort of got this this sort of vision um, which is a too too fancy a word but I got this picture in my brain about how, yes, I totally agreed. And what we needed to do was get people, after a crash and burn, to be able to get their crisis treated, but then develop uh, for them a recovery program that they can embrace that helps them begin to steadily regain their life so that they can walk back up this mountain and end up with a room with a view i sort of pictured someone who had suffered and crashed and burned being able to develop all the physical emotional spiritual and other uh skill sets they would need to hike up the mountain and then have the resources to get a really good room somewhere on this mountain with a good view. And when I thought about the view, I thought about the fact that um, recovery at its best is when people regain perspective on their lives. They have the skill sets to live in the day, but they also have a certain hope for the future, an inspired way of seeing that gives them purpose and meaning and Helps them help others and all that really good stuff. And so to me, that felt like having a room with a view. So that's where the title for this uh, series came from. I started out the session last weekend um, talking about why not me or why me, depending on your view. Uh, I asked the question, do you ever feel or ask yourself the question, why me? Do you ever feel sorry for yourself? Do you ever wonder why bad things happen to you? And we got a whole bunch of different responses. Uh, Somebody said, I never think, why me? I just think, uh, how do I fix whatever it is that I did wrong? Somebody else suggested that they don't really think about their lives that much anyway. They're too busy solving other people's problems. Someone else said, well, I'm more concerned about um, how to succeed than getting all wrapped around the axle about my failure. And on and on and on the discussions went, and they were all really good. And um, I use that to illustrate something that I think people who cannot get a room with a view um, never really address about their lives. And that is that we have very, very patterned, habitual reactions to stress and life problems. And these very predictable patterned ways are not always good for us because obviously we're going to have lots of life situations that require a variety of responses. So having a particular habitual patterned response or reaction to crisis or trouble or heartache or stress or sometimes even good news, is obviously not the optimal health for us. So what I supposed was that um, if we're going to do better, if we are going to acquire for ourselves a room for review, we were going to have to make some changes. And I'm using in this four-week session... 11 key um, skill sets that people who develop resilience, who develop skill sets acquire that give them the capacity to live life um, in a healthy, reasonably happy way. So we're going to talk about those 11 skill sets, and I'm going to mention three of them at the end of today's message. But first, I wanted to lay sort of the foundation for all this. Because at the heart, I believe that somebody who recovers has to find a place for hope that lies outside themselves and their their circumstances. And I think this is just the the foundation upon which that mountain sits. That if you don't have, you're always you're always on shaky ground. Uh, in order to illustrate that point, I picked out two scripture passages. Man, I could have picked out forty, but you know, time is limited, right? But I picked out two. The first one I picked out was Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. And it goes like this. The Spirit of God is on me because God anointed me. He sent me to preach good news to the poor, heal the brokenhearted, announce freedom to all captives, pardon all prisoners. So there is this sense that in this passage that we get a really good look at who God is and what he's up to. He's... Um, un- He's appointed or anointed people uh, to help uh, bring good news to people who haven't had any in a long time. Uh, He doesn't beat up the heartbroken and ask them what they've done wrong in order to be so heartbroken. He heals them. Um, He doesn't uh, look down upon captives because they've been captured. Instead, he offers them freedom. And he gives pardon to prisoners. This is who God is. Here's another one also in Isaiah 66. Um, And this one goes like this. It says, and this is what God is saying. He says, heaven's my throne. Earth is my footstool. What sort of house could you build for me? What holiday spot reserved for me? I made all this. I own all this. But there is something I'm looking for. A person simple and plain reverently responsive to what I say. Now, the week before I preached this message, Scott taught a message also out of Isaiah, which is why I chose out of the same book. Because he made the point that in the book of Isaiah, it becomes readily apparent that God's people are crying out for mercy from a position of complete lack of clarity or self-awareness or repentance. And God chooses to offer them mercy. And to me, this is another example of um, who God is. So he's told us in 61, look, I want to give you good stuff. I love you and I'm crazy about you. And I'm not here to make anything harder on you. And then in 66, he says, why do you guys keep thinking you have to feed me trinkets or offer burnt offerings and sacrifices to me? I built the place. I own it all. When you give me something back, you're only giving me something I gave to you to begin with. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't desire anything from us. What he desires is relationship and a relationship that is reverently responsive to what he says that's paying attention. Gosh, isn't that what we would all want from any relationship? wouldn't we want the people that we care about to listen to us and to be responsive to what we say i'm not saying always agree and i don't think he is either it's just saying pay attention have a conversation care enough to be responsive when i'm speaking as i am responsive to you when you're speaking so This is the foundation that I think we operate from, and this is the practice that I want to tell you about that I want to suggest we begin to do for all four weeks. I would like to suggest that it is in our best interest if you want to you know, climb out of the trash heap of your last crisis and your biggest disappointment and your deepest bottom and develop the discipline of believing that God is exactly who he says he is. He's not who we fear him to be. He's not even who some people have tried to manipulate us to think he is in order to get us to behave better. He is this God in the scriptures that uh, anoints people, brings good news to people who don't have any, heals heartbroken people, frees captives, pardons prisoners, and is really only looking for relationship from us, not compliance, uh, not trinkets, not burnt offerings. So what I'm gonna suggest we do for the next four weeks is each one of us take some responsibility for figuring out how we remember that this is the discipline uh, for this series, the discipline of believing that God is who he says he is, and then allowing that to inform what we think, what we feel, and what we do. I hope that makes sense. Let me recap by giving you a couple of suggestions for how you might do that. One of the things I've been doing and will continue to do through this series is I started a new notebook for myself, The Discipline of Believing. And in that notebook, as I do my daily devotionals or as I come across a scripture just randomly through one of the emails that I get daily online or or whatever, Facebook, I don't care uh, where we get the scripture verses. But when we find a scripture verse, or in my case, when I find a scripture verse that speaks to who God says he is, I write it in my notebook so that I have it as sort of a daily reminder. This is who he says he is. And what I'm doing during these four weeks is keeping that notebook kind of a running tally of what I discover. And every morning before my day begins, I review each of the scripture passages. It doesn't take me that long. I haven't been at it that long to fill the notebook up. So right now, it takes me a few minutes to read it. And then I just say, today, I believe, God, that you are who you say you are. And I'm going to look for ways to think, to feel and to take action based on this, that I can trust you with this. Okay, so that's what we're gonna do for four weeks. We're gonna develop the discipline of believing that God is who he says he is. Now, with that foundation in mind, which is a really nice, firm foundation of truth, in my opinion, we're gonna begin to look at three skill sets for today that we build that make us more resilient, and make us uh, the kind of people who can get a room with a view um, and not uh, keep finding ourselves um, in crisis all the time, or reacting all the time in very habitual patterned, impulsive ways, ways that don't necessarily serve us best in each and every situation. All right, number one, number one skill for resilient people who get a room with a view These people stay connected to other people. They develop community. So you hear this all the time at North Star, so you know that. They are willing to have relationships with people who don't vote the way they do, don't practice their spirituality in necessarily the same way. They are willing to stay connected with people who have different perspectives on life, and they're willing to listen to them. They're willing to be loving towards uh, these folks, and they allow all, all sorts of folks to treat them in a loving manner, too. So, resilient people develop communities that are larger than just their family system of origin, and there's that enriches them and fills out what they uh, experience about life. And um, these new experiences help them uh, change. Uh, their minds about their thought life, even their feelings and um, their actions. Because when we know better, we do better. And when we have more options, we can, uh, we can take them, which gives us better outcomes, which gives us resilience, which allows us to climb the mountain and acquire that room with a view. Okay. Thing one, be connected to people, not just the people who confirm what you already believe, but have loving relationships with people who actually challenge how you think and what you feel and what you do, because this helps us do option number two, which is be flexible. So, when I'm talking about flexibility as a resilient skill set, what I mean is that we so often have just taken at face value our own thoughts our own habitual habit, habit patterns of actions and our feelings as if they are static, unchanging things, if they as if they are certainty, as if they're not meant to be changed. But the truth is uh, thoughts are just thoughts and um, we can actually be flexi- flexible about them. So let me give you a, the, an example that I used in the message. So uh, last weekend uh, was really hot. and We were out working in the yard, and uh, I squirted my husband, Peter, with the, phone, with the um, water hose. And he he liked it that I cooled them down on that very hot day, but I didn't realize he had his phone in his hand, and it got the phone wet, and that really irritated him. And he felt extremely irritated with me for squirting him with the, foam, with the hose and the phone. After a few minutes, after he had cooled down a little bit from his irritation, I said, I'd like you to consider being more flexible about your feelings. And he said, what are you talking about? And I said, well, you're irritated uh, because I squirted you and got your phone wet. But now that you've had a couple of minutes to realize that the phone's not broken and it's still working and all that stuff, could you consider the fact that I didn't know the phone was in your hand and would I really intentionally ever get your phone wet? So because he's really mature, he said, uh, point well taken. And after that, he really chose, instead of being irritable with me, He chose to see that I intended no harm, and no harm actually happened, and that ice-cold splash of water did feel kind of good when he was super hot. What that little experiment proved is that it's possible to change how we feel about things. You don't have emotional wires running around in your brain uh, that preclude you from having a wide range of emotions. However... We may be used to only attending to a couple of emotions. Maybe we only get in the habit of paying attention to our irritability. Maybe we need to practice paying more attention to what we can be grateful for or uh, ways that we can find humor uh, and fun in the situation. So thing two is be flexible. Be flexible with our thoughts, with our feelings, and with our actions. And we'll, we'll keep unpacking that in the weeks ahead. Finally, the third thing is extremely practical. It is make a plan and follow through with it to completion. It turns out that people who end up with a room with a view are people who can actually do that, make a plan and take action and follow it through to completion. Having an idea about a plan is not executing the plan. It's just daydreaming. So I would suggest that if making and goals and following through and keeping commitments and following through all the way to the end is hard for you, uh, I would suggest finding a plan for something that's not too complicated, that's not too difficult, every day, one thing, and stick to it and bring it to completion. This is a skill set. People don't have personalities that say, oh, I can complete plans or I can't complete plans. People who have a plan and can follow it through to completion are people who have practiced knowing how to do that. So that's the third skill set. So I've given you four things to think about uh, for today's message. I'm suggesting you get some school supplies and notebooks and really begin to take notes and maybe even... Develop some plans of your own for developing the spiritual discipline of believing, thinking, feeling, and acting on uh, the truth that God is who he says he is, and that's really good news for us. And I'm going to have you look at three skill sets. Do you remember what they were? Community and connections with a wide variety of people. Flexibility in thought, in action, and in feelings and third, the capacity to make plans, follow through to completion. These are the three skill sets that help us be able to uh, develop the strength, the character, and the wherewithal to climb back up that mountain and not uh, end up in an avalanche. North Star Community can be found on the web at www.northstarcommunity.com Royalty-free music was provided courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions, which can be found on the web at sessions.blue.